I want to begin with a statement. I'll just call this a true truth. Trying to be who or what you are not can have fatal consequences. Let me say that again. Trying to be who or what you are not can have fatal consequences. Whoever's doing the PowerPoint this morning, just go ahead and put up that first slide. Uh, this is the picture behind me. You see it. Uh, this man, uh, his name is, was born with the name a Christian. Um, anybody know German? Say it again. Say that again. No, the last name. That was not right. Gerhard Strider, we'll just call him that. This guy claimed to be somebody else for three decades. He posed as a, a British baron, a cardiologist in Las Vegas, a Hollywood producer, a bond broker in New York, and finally, as a member of the famous Rockefeller family. It all came apart in 2007 when the man known then as Clark Rockefeller was arrested and charged with kidnapping his own daughter. You see behind me, I think maybe a, maybe a high school picture, and then you see the picture of him uh, incarcerated. He looks a little uh, troubling behind me. Mark Seal wrote a book about this guy in the book title, which is a long title, The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, The Astonishing Rise and Spectacular Fall of a Serial Imposter. He says when he arrived in New York City, he convinced people that he was a member of the Rockefeller family. He married a Harvard-educated finance lawyer named Sandra Boss, she thought he was the most intelligent man she'd ever met. They stayed married for more than a decade, had a child together, but eventually she learned this. Everything in this man's life was a lie. You imagine this, living 30 years as a fraud, as an imposter, pretending not just to be one person, but maybe six or seven different people along the course of your life. Think about that. Imagine someone putting that kind of effort into pretending, a serial imposter. And admittedly, um, we may not be as amped up as Clark Rockefeller was with his uh, pretending to be someone he, he was not. But truth be known, every one of us here this morning, every man here understands this uh, idea of, of trying hard to be perceived a certain way. And often that perception that we project, what we want others to think of us, is different from uh, who we really are on the inside. A lot has been written about this, a lot of research done, they've even given it a title, and the title they give to what I'm uh, introducing to you this morning is this idea of the imposter syndrome. And here's the thesis that those uh, who've studied this came up with. That every human being, every person sitting around you, as well as the guy sitting in your seat, 
at least from time to time, has experienced the sense of being a fraud. We all carry around with us the knowledge that we have pretended. We pretended to know things that we didn't know. To have achieved things that we didn't really achieve. We pretended to work hard when we're actually just squandering our time. We pretend to be smarter, happier, healthier, stronger, humbler, better than we really are. And just to kind of get us started, kind of level the playing field for us uh, this morning, I'm going to give you some examples of, of different ways guys like us pretend. And then when I'm done with these, we're going to have a mass confession of pretending. Here's the first category. Have you ever been watching TV, maybe loafing on the couch or your easy chair? You hear a car pull into the garage. You hear the garage door. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your kid, somebody. Maybe it's a roommate. And you quickly turn off the TV and maybe pick up a book or a magazine to try to look like you're doing something productive and not just squandering your time watching football. Ever done that? How about this one? Ever had someone mention a person or, a, or an event or a fact and um, it was something that you thought you should know? So you pretended like you did know it even though you had no idea what they were talking about. Ever done that? This is a good one. This, this hurts me even to relay it to you. Have you ever been driving and there's a person right over here, a car next to you, and they're trying to make eye contact with you because they want you to let them in? But you pretend that you don't see them. <laughs> so that instead of thinking that you're a complete jerk, they might think, wow, that's a guy in real deep thought. He must be uh, a really thoughtful guy. <laughs> How many of us would be willing to admit this morning that from time to time we've pretended? Just raise your hand. How many of you are pretending like you didn't hear the question? <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. The temptation to be inauthentic, to try to be someone that we're not, happens every day. And as we're going to see this morning, it happens in the church. You've heard the story. We've studied this in our Acts series. God has brought together this amazing collection of people. People who, for centuries, have been enemies have now been brought together in this new community of faith. Authentic relationships are being formed. Old walls and barriers are being broken down. Miraculous things are happening every day in this new community. What God is seeking to build is an authentic community of love, but we're going to see this morning that sometimes we find it difficult to cooperate with him in building this kind of authentic community. It's always good to start out on a positive note. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a story at a guy. We're going to look at a story about a guy who kind of gets this right. Giving himself to building an authentic community of love, of generosity, of encouragement. One guy who gets it right. And then after that, we're going to look at a couple, a, a husband and a wife, who get it horribly, terribly wrong. So with that background, uh, let's look at these verses before us. Chapter 4, 
beginning with verse 32. Remember, this is God's word to us. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We'll stop there. Luke reboots for us what what life looked like in this supernatural new community. And I want you to note that not word for word, but very much the same essence of what Luke is saying here is what he Uh, gave us back in chapter 2 when this new community is formed. A lot of the same wording. And I'll tell you why that's important. Because this is later in the story. And it's important because uh, starting well is pretty easy. Finishing well is a whole other thing. These believers didn't just start off well, start off being loving or generous. They're going the distance. They're continuing at it. They've not become weary in their well-doing. I'm friends with a lot of uh, ministry partners that we have around the city. Folk who are trying to bring change and healing and shalom to various under-resourced neighborhoods. And here's what they'll tell you. They'll tell you that getting somebody to come once or twice to help with a project, it's really not all that difficult. Getting them to hunker down and stay and to continue to invest and continue to build relationships and and continue to uh, marshal their resources is a whole other thing. Getting them to keep on showing up is much more difficult. This community was generous, and it was also encouraging. One biblical scholar says the reason that's important is that he says encouragement is the language of the New Testament. If you want to do an interesting word study, look at the phrase to encourage, to encourage. It appears over a hundred times in Scripture, a hundred times in the New Testament. And uh, the guy that we're looking at this morning could sort of be the, paint, the patron saint of encouraging words and deeds. This is our introduction to a man named Joseph. And we will uh, track his life and learn more about Joseph and learn that Joseph became a, a, a key partner in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And it was his gift of encouragement and exhortation that really fueled the fire of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. But here's how Joseph's story starts. Verse 
36. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph was a Levite. What does that tell us? Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and in this day they served as assistants to the priests. Sometimes they were doorkeepers in the temple. Sometimes they would be musicians. But Joseph was not even allowed to do those things, to be a doorkeeper in the temple, to be a musician, because, we're told, he was a native of Cyprus. He was not born in Israel. And so Joseph would have been called a Hellenist. Hellenists were Israelites who were born overseas. And they were regarded as, from the standpoint of the pure Jews, they were regarded as those who had been um, tainted or poisoned by foreign gods and foreign people and foreign ways. They picked up a, a defilement of sorts. We know in Acts 6, we'll see this maybe in a couple weeks, that in the new church there was a good bit of hostility that arose between the Hellenists and what we'll call the, the pure Jew. Joseph was not allowed to serve in the temple even though he was a Levite. He was marginalized. He was sort of set aside. He had to be an observer. And I don't know about you, but if I was Joseph, it wasn't my fault I was born in a foreign land. I've got a good heart. If I'm Joseph, I could have had developed kind of a, a BA, what we call around our house a BA. And that's not what you think. It refers to bad attitude. It would have been easy for Joseph to kind of have a chip on his shoulder, a bad attitude. Well, you don't want me to serve. I'll pull back. I won't engage. I won't give. But he doesn't go that way. He becomes part of this new community. He sees a need. He sees poverty. And he thinks to himself, hey, wait a minute. I've got some property. I could sell some of my stuff. And my stuff, my resources, can maybe help somebody else out. He's the, re the first recorded donor in the new community. I was thinking about this yesterday. You think about all the, the universities and the missions agencies and schools and hospitals and so on, all the billions of dollars that were given, on a human level, Joseph was the one who started it all. He doesn't do it to be a big shot. He doesn't do it to get recognition for himself. The text says he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What's that about? What, what is that about? Laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, I think it's to say... You know, apostles, spiritual leaders, you know what to do with this. I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering, no strings attached. I'm surrendering this to you. Use it as you deem necessary. Just bless other people. No need to mention my name. I don't need a plaque on a building next to my name. Encouragement has amazing power. And the apostles are so thankful for Joseph and his example, that they give him a new name, don't they? They give him a nickname, Barney. They call him Barney. 
Now they call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And everybody who sees this going on celebrates. This is what we would call a good moment, a good thing. But it's followed by a a bad moment, a a bad thing. Because beginning with chapter 5, which interestingly begins with the word but... We learn that a couple sees what's going on. They see the celebration. They see the joy, but there's no joy in them. And so with that as a background, with having framed Joseph's story, the one who got it right, let's look now at chapter 5, this couple who went a radically different way. This is maybe one of the most sobering passages certainly in the New Testament, maybe in all of the Bible. Listen to these words. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, I'll just, as a caveat, I wouldn't have wanted, wanted to be a young man in this church. You know, sorry, guys, they got a really bum job. When the young men, sorry for that, when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I'll bet it did. Aren't you glad you woke up this morning? This great story. Again, one of the most sobering passages in the Bible And uh, here's what's happening in the story. I want us to look at it. I want to walk through what what was going on behind the scenes with Ananias and Sapphira. I want us to grapple with our own uh, imposter syndromes. And we're going to seek wisdom from the Lord and how to address that, how to uh, correct that in a redemptive way. We can always speculate, but I think part of the reason that there was no joy in them, Ananias and Sapphira, was because they were, they were not the ones who were receiving the praise. 
People in, the, in this new community were celebrating this gift that Barnabas gave, and there's a lot of excitement. But for them, as they looked on, they realized that nobody's recognizing us. So instead of being happy for the gift and grateful for Barnabas, they just have this emotion of jealousy. Ever struggle with that? Not just what we would call the imposter syndrome, but what I might call this morning the spotlight syndrome. When you feel as though someone else is getting more attention or recognition than you. Give you a clip from my own life. I'll be very transparent this morning, more than maybe you're comfortable with, but I'll, I'll start in the safe uh, area and then it'll get messier as we go along. I do a lot of weddings. And it wasn't long ago that I was on the phone with another pastor from another city and he was co-officiating a wedding with me. This guy is about 20 years younger than me. He was in kind of a campus ministry. And uh, we're talking on the phone about the ceremony and how it's going to flow and all that. And this is what he said to me. Rock, I think you should take... Rock, I think I, I... He said, I think I should take this part of the ceremony because that's the significant part, and I think that's the part I should do. It's one of those moments where it's good that you're on the phone <laughs> and not in face-to-face -face conversation. But I just enough to say, it flew all over me. And among other thoughts, some thoughts I have no intention of sharing with you, among other thoughts, I was thinking this, wait a minute, bro, you're telling me what I'm, this is, this is my church. You're on my turf. I'll tell you what to do. And not only that, you're 20 years younger than me, you punk. <laughs> I had those thoughts. <laughs> Question. Why do you think I was so ticked off? Because I wanted the significant part. I wanted to be in the spotlight. I wanted to be the one who had, who had the, the, the weightiest part of the ceremony. Ever find yourself jockeying for position? for recognition, for life in the limelight. All that leads to the second takeaway. Not only, did I even give you this first point? Well, that's really embarrassing. I'm just realizing that. The first point is spiritual payment. Spiritual payment. Um, I have no idea what's going on behind me, so um, just do the best you can and copy off your neighbor's paper. That's, what, that's, how, that's how most of you got here in the first place. Not only a spiritual payment, which is what Joseph Barnabas gave, but this issue of spiritual pretending, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Somewhere along the way, Ananias and Sapphira think, you know, we'd like people to, to be wowed when they look at us. We'd like to have that same kind of praise and honor that Barnabas received. We want that directed to us. And you'll see this in your notes. And this is very important. They were not looking to become generous people. They just wanted to be known as generous people. It's a big difference. 
And of course, this is one of the great dangers in the church today, the danger, the quest for spiritual growth and how it can get twisted and perverted and lead to something far worse, which is a performance-based, pretending, people-pleasing trap devoid from an inward reality. Another clip from, uh, from my life, one of my earliest memories of church probably goes back to maybe third grade vacation Bible school. Don't remember the teacher's name, but I remember some things about it. And, you know, and some of you have had this experience. Part of the deal with vacation Bible school is that you're supposed to memorize a verse a day. And the teacher uh, had uh, a racetrack set up on the wall. And each of our uh, little racers had our name, Rocky's little racer with blue shirt on. And each hurdle was a Bible verse. If you memorize that Bible verse, you get to advance your, your runner. The prize, and this is key, the prize was a big, beautiful, white Bible. For some reason, that was attractive to me in second or third grade. And not only that, they were going to put your name on it with gold embossing. Rocky Anthony. I wanted that Bible. I wanted it so bad, I would have broken every law in the Bible just to get the Bible. (laughs) And what eventually came to light was, because I am hardwired for competition, I'm sorry to say, that the race was really being, uh, you know, battled out between me and a girl named Lynn Anderson. Lynn didn't have much of a social life, and she must have just stayed at home and memorized verses. And she kept advancing, advancing, advancing. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do about Lynn Anderson? What am I going to do? So I killed her. (laughs) I killed her. At least in my mind, I did. I did not like her. I I would have done almost anything to have won. But I didn't. I wanted my name spelled out in gold letters. I did not rejoice when Lynn Anderson's name was called. And when they handed her the Bible and everybody clapped, guess who didn't clap? I remember this vividly. Some of you know the temptation to turn the church into a contest to see who gets more stickers than everybody else. Who wins? We turn spiritual formation into a competitive sport. Who can win the most involved award? The best servant award. The most sacrificial giver award. The most always here early award. I just need to tell you this morning that it's the wrong race. It's the wrong race. If, you're, if you choose to run that race, it will lead to a toxic form of spiritual pretending and a sinister form of self-righteousness that will absolutely poison your soul. It will. I've been teaching through the Beatitudes. Uh, The class I teach on Sunday mornings is actually right here in this room. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is teaching us about a different way of living, a kingdom life. He talks to us about the economy of heaven and how things work in it. 
Some of the most radically countercultural words you'll find anywhere in the Bible. I'll just re- uh, uh, review these for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It doesn't sound very competitive to me. This is essential to our walk with Jesus. Jesus who says, you want to follow me? Beautiful. Here's the deal. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and then follow me. Die to this foolish, destructive struggle to prove your, spirit, uh, your spiritual superiority or your significance with a big display of greatness. Just let it go. And you remember these words of Jesus, uh, words about Jesus in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, though being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but he emptied himself and he took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the, on the cross. See, for Jesus, get this, brothers, for Jesus, it was all about downward mobility. Heaven to earth, earth to being a servant, a servant to the extent that he surrendered his own life. Isn't it interesting that most of us have a completely different life trajectory? Jesus going down, 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 and we're all about up, up, up. Ananias and Sapphira decide to sell their land, but they're not ready to give up all the money for the sale, which, of course, was never even the issue in the first place. It wasn't the price of the land. It's not a story about giving as much as it is a story about living authentically, being honest about who we are, being honest about our brokenness, which leads to our third point, and I'm, I'm back on track giving you the right points at the right time. Divine spiritual perception, spiritual perception. In other words, God gives Peter this unique insight into what's going on below the surface uh, in, in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. The Spirit revealed to him that the story that they were telling, the story that Sapphira was sticking to, was a lie, was a sham. And I pulled this out of our Amen commentary on Acts written by John Stott because I think it just sort of concretizes or crystallizes what's really going on here. Let me just read it. You can see it in your notes. It was not on this sin that Peter concentrated, however but on the other, hypocrisy. The apostles' complaint was not that they lacked honesty, bringing only a part of the sale price, but that they lacked integrity, bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. They were not so much misers as thieves, and above all, liars. They wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. I love that phrase. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. And I think, and I'll just touch on this, I think one of the great tragedies of the story is how easily, how easily it could have gone a different way. 
Imagine the difference in the way this story plays out if Ananias and Sapphira come to terms and are honest about the chaos, about the plan concocted in their hearts. And that they would come to Peter and basically say, Peter, here's, here's the deal. We want to give the land. But part of the problem is we're, we're just struggling with, with greed and control. And we're tempted to give part of it until we're insane that we're giving all of it. And there's just stuff messed up in us, Peter. Would you help us? Would you pray for us? Would you counsel us? I think how different this story would have gone if they just would have done that. But they don't. I can't imagine, Peter, if they would have said that saying to them, you guys are seriously messed up. I mean, there's no place in this church for folk with attitudes and, and uh, desires like y'all. There's the exit door. Why don't you take it now? I can't imagine Peter saying that for this reason. Remember Peter's story? There in the upper room, while Jesus is preparing his disciples for uh, the events of Passion Week, his, uh, his uh, being arrested, the trial, the persecution the crucifixion, all of it. And he looks to Peter and he says, Peter, it's going to get so bad that you're going to deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows. And of course, you remember Peter's response. Lord, seriously, everybody else will deny you. I'm the one guy you can count on. I'm your, I'm your guy. But then Jesus is arrested and Peter is out in the courtyard, and a young slave girl says, hey, wait a minute, weren't you with him? Peter's response, with who? I don't know who you, I don't even know him. And then another, didn't I see you with him? No, not me, don't even know him. Third time, certainly you were with, for, for he's a Galilean, you're a Galilean. Surely you know him. You were with, you're one of his disciples. No, I don't know him, never met him. Leave me alone. And then what happens next? The rooster crows. And we're told in the Gospel of Luke, I believe, that the rooster crows and Peter looks across the courtyard and there is Jesus looking right at him. And he remembered the words. Here's why I mention all that. See, Ananias and Sapphira were trying really hard to pretend to be somebody that they weren't. Peter was trying not to be somebody who he was. They're both imposters. They're both fakers. And so if only Ananias and Sapphira would have been honest, I'm convinced that they would have been offered grace, but they decided not to come clean. So on a human level, there was pretending, there was perceiving on Peter's part, but that's not really the real issue. The real issue we find buried here in verses 3 and 4. Because Ananias and Sapphira had not only lied to the apostles, and lied to this new community. The real issue, the ultimate issue, is that they lied to God. They offended the character, the holiness, the purity of God. Verse 3, why has Satan so filled your hearts 
to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Then the end of verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. Sometimes as a parent of four kids, and a couple of those are teenagers right now, and then two college students, I kind of wish I had Peter's ability to perceive truth. Wouldn't it be great you're talking to your teenager? Hey, what'd you do tonight? And they're telling us there, and you're able to say, no, you didn't. That'd be beautiful. I think my mom had some of that. You talk about moms having eyes in the back of their heads. I, I did a lot of things, but I didn't get away with many things. Just a reminder, even when nobody's looking, even when we think we've gotten away with something, here's the deal, brothers. God sees. God knows. God perceives. And while we spin and try to manage our image in our lives, God sees behind the whole thing. Story about another kid who was in vacation Bible school trying to memorize a verse, maybe trying to beat Lynn Anderson, I don't know. And here's, he, he, he got his verses kind of mixed up. A lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in our time of trouble. It's the story of our lives. One of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus coming from John's prologue, John 1.14. John who walked with Jesus. John who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John, who knows Jesus, lived with him, traveled with him for over three years, says truth is essential to the character of Jesus. Not just that he spoke truth, not just that he was an honest man, but that Jesus was truth incarnate. And so here's the point with that. Living, speaking, honoring the truth are essential commitments to following Jesus Christ. So clearly, one of the takeaways for us this morning in light of this passage has to do with our honesty before God, who knows our hearts, who knows our steps, which leads to this question. It's a very uh, fundamental question. Are you living a life of integrity right now? God says to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 15, and 16b, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who says, Who sees us? Who knows us? Or the thing formed, say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. So we want to live with this sense that, you know, if we just do some good things over here, God might be preoccupied looking at the few good things we're doing, and he'll be completely distracted from all this other stuff we're doing. Not so. You can lie to another person. You can spend the truth. You can mastermind the great cover-up and scheme, but God knows you can't hide from him. Psalm 139. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of our ways. When we're going, listen, when we're going through a difficult time, 
we read a verse like that and it brings great comfort. What I'm saying to us this morning is, as we're trying to manage an unreconciled issue of character, that verse should scare the bejabbers out of us. Talking to Sandy W. earlier this week, I told him, I said, you know, Chief, <laughs> it's not going to be possible for me to speak to the Amen Bible study about the perils of pretending without telling a little bit more of my story. Some of you uh, know some of my story, especially these last two years, I'll say. Some of you don't. Many of you know, because you've seen me um, all crickety and uh, maybe 30 pounds heavier and all you know, bloated and sweaty and stuff, knew that I was in significant pain for a lot of years. Five back surgeries, two fusions. And about uh, an 11-year span of time, I never went off pain medicine for over 10 years. And you know how this works, where a little pain medicine helps you on the outset, but then your body kind of gets used to that, kind of the, the law of diminishing returns. So you take a little bit more. You take a little bit more. And it, it got to the point where really I was just a walking pharmacy. You know, the, the, the dresser in my bedroom was just, you know, filled with pain-related meds. And it got to where um, the, the, the life out here that I was trying to manage, just stay in the game, keep helping people, just work, work, through, the, work through the moment, and the life I was living in solitude, the gap between those two was unbelievable, and it just kept growing every day. To the point where in the desperation and the sadness and the over-medication that literally one night standing on Mississippi Bridge looking down, ready to just end it. And then the next morning, I'm in pastor's prayer, and those two worlds aren't talking to each other at all. And for me by God's grace and the help of some people, ended up in a place called Cleveland Clinic Chronic Pain Rehabilitation Program. It might as well just have been called the Rocky Rescue Facility. And what I learned there, many things, but one of the things I learned is I was not just someone who was taking a lot of medicine. I was someone who was addicted to a lot of medicine. And for me, the clarity that that brought of the life I'm trying to manage and then the life that is, the gap between those two was unbelievable. And by God's grace, I'm here to tell a little bit of that story. And I'm still working my recovery. I'm still um, taking one day at a time and um, have sponsors and I got more people poking around in my brain than I really need right now, but I think I do need them. Here's why I tell you that story. Brothers, I'm, you're looking at Ananias and Sapphira right here. I get it. I get it. 
passage teaches us some important things about how we are to live. Spiritual payment, the generosity of Barnabas. Spiritual pretending, the script of Ananias and Sapphira. Spiritual perception, the Holy Spirit gifting Peter to see behind the veil. And then, and we should expect this, spiritual penalty. You could even say spiritual punishment that comes as a result of intentional deception. Here's what I know. I know that on our own, we would love to read stories in the Bible that have to do with God's grace and his mercy and his patience and his forgiveness and his love. I doubt any of us have a little happy smiley face in the margin next to Acts 5, 1 through 11. Some of us, if we could, we just take a razor blade and we edit out the whole, the whole story. And what we forget is that while God has all those attributes of grace and mercy, compassion, forgiveness, patience, love, and many others, we forget sometimes, and this passage, of course, reminds us that God is holy and pure and righteous and just. And when we see this aspect of, uh, in Scripture of, of God showing us once again his purity, his greatness, his grandeur, we're sort of uh, uncomfortable with it. Look at this verse that I put in your notes, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship and I'll, with reverence and awe, forgive me, and I'll say this next line here is one that many contemporary Christians would love to edit out of their Bibles. For our God is a, what? Consuming fire. People reading this knew the Old Testament stories. And so when they read, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, they knew all about that. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God. They lied to the apostles and all the church. And tragically, as we read, they are disciplined to the extent that they are struck dead. Peter asks, how could you do this? How could you pretend and stick to your script? And they stick to it to the extent that they're struck dead, carried out, and buried right next to each other in the graveyard in the back of the church. It's a chilling story. So let's just be clear about this. The God that we worship this morning, the God that we gather together each Thursday morning, each Sunday to learn about is a great king. He is holy. He is pure. He is transcendent. He is what we call the holy other. He's true, powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. And sometimes, and this is why I mention this, in our casual Christianity, we want to turn God into our cosmic buddy. He is not your cosmic buddy. He's the king. I love this from Hebrews 
4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And as we saw in the story, and here goes to uh, number five, and we'll pull all things together with this. The impact of this event on the life of the new community was profound. The spiritual product, or we could say the result or the outcome, chapter 5, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Fear for sure. As these believers witnessed the, the power, the holiness, the purity of God living out, being lived out, they were in awe of it. And again, I think we're living in a day where we want to trivialize the holiness of God. We want God to be accessible. We want God to be like us. I think it was Anne Lamont who made this comment. God made man in his own image. And man returned the favor. We want a God that we can morph and adjust and shape to fit whatever we think we need of him. And that's a backward way of living our Christian lives. This issue of reverent fear was moving through the whole church. Wise King Solomon helps us understand this. The book of Proverbs is a great book to study uh, on the holiness of God and the wisdom of God and our need to have a reverent fear of him. Look at this verse from Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Solomon closes his journal about life and meaning in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he basically says, Here's, you know, in the language that we would use today, brothers, let me net it out for you. And here's what Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. I'm going to net it out for you. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You want to memorize a great verse, not to get over a hurdle and beat Lynn Anderson, but just a verse that will be good for your soul? Write that down somewhere, that little reference, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's what God is calling us to today. Fear him. Don't trivialize him. Keep his commandments. Ananias and Sapphira completely missed it. And sometimes we miss it. We struggle trying to be somebody that we're not. To impress or to create a bigger image of ourselves than is real. And rather than walking in the light as he is in the light, we run, we pretend, we hide. We go back to what happened with Adam and Eve, the first time sin entered the human condition. Remember the progression? They sinned. They saw they were naked. They felt ashamed. And they, what? They hid. They hid from each other. 
and they hid from God. And I'm telling you, friends, that's exactly what you and I do in the face of sin. And maybe for you, just being reminded this morning that the community of Christ is to be a place that's safe. I remember, you know, I, I walked to school every day, not 10 miles, but maybe a half a mile. And back then, I'm dating myself now, but back then there was a, a deal set up by the school system in some neighborhoods uh, that people would talk about a, a safe house. And they'd actually have in the window, some of you remember this, they would have, actually have in maybe the window that was looking out on the street, just the outline, black outline of just a house with, you know, a little chimney or whatever. But it was, a, it was just a picture of a house. And that was your sign. Got in trouble, afraid about something, somebody's mess, run to the safe house. In the Old Testament, uh, there was a similar uh, system set in place. It was called the city of refuge. You commit a crime and somebody's going to take vengeance on you and you kind of like a trial, make sure that you're not guilty, that you're not going to be killed. You know, you, you would run to the city of refuge. It's like back in the days where we played tag and you try to get to home base where you're safe. Here's why I mention that. The community of Christ is to be a safe house. The community of Jesus is to be a city of refuge. The one place we can go to be the real us and to be loved. And the first step in making that happen, building an authentic community, is you being willing to admit, listen, everything is not just great with you. And I'll tell you why that's important. And I want you to listen as we close. Because tucked in this room, maybe under a jogging suit or a designer suit, are hidden alcoholics, hidden rage-aholics, porn-aholics, maybe food-aholics. In this room, we have liars, deceivers, the arrogant, and the alienated. We have broken, lonely, friendless men, rebellious, angry. They're all right here. No need to look around. He's sitting in your seat. And the great tragedy, call it the Ananias and Sapphira syndrome, we work so hard to keep all that stuff hidden from everybody else. One pastor put it this way, our greatest fear, uh, he, he put it this way, we're more worried about being found out than we are with getting help. Tragic. This morning, I'm just asking you to come clean. To give up the whole, I've got it all together game. Just give it up. And the dream is that as we honestly acknowledge our brokenness to each other within the community of love, that we might experience 
a piece of what Jesus had in mind when he created his body, his bride in the first place. Let's get right what Ananias and Sapphira got wrong. And with Jesus' help, let us become that one place where you can go and be the real you and still be loved. Brothers, here's your chance. Let's pray.